What's up and welcome back to the Cycling with Watts podcast. I'm your host, Jared Watts, and today we are talking about the queen of the classics, Perry Roubaix. It was Sunday. It was amazing. It was awesome. There was so much carnage, actually not as much carnage as Tour de France Perry Roubaix stage, but there was carnage to be had. We got two new bikes to talk about as well. So let's get right into the show. All right, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. Basically, I go through pro news and then get into some tech after that. And this is a beautiful time to be doing a podcast and be talking about pro news because we get like a new race every single week. We get new winners, we get new storylines, new things to talk about. And this week is super special because it is Perry Bay, and we got two new bikes to talk about. I mean, it's very rare that you know, one, that a new bike is launched, but two new bikes. So we got so much to talk about. So Perry Bay, let's talk about the course first, let's do a little little prep work, and then we'll get into like the full meat of the race. If you didn't see it, this will give you a good recap. If you did see it, you can relive all the glory and the drama. So Perry Bay traditionally starts in, and if you uh regular listener of the show, you know I butcher names, so this is a French town. Traditional start in Compagnie. Compagnie. I think I said that right. 250Ks. It ends in the Roubaix Velodrome. I know I can say Roubaix correctly because I've heard a million other people say Roubaix. There's a couple bikes named Roubaix. And hint, hint, Roubaix is definitely one of the bikes we will be talking about in the tech section as Specialized just released that new bike. And what is Paris-Roubaix famous for? It is famous for the demanding the just imposing force that is the cobbles of Perry Roubaix. There's 29 sectors on this 254 kilometer course. They are all rated with different stars. You got one star being the easiest sector. You got five being the hardest sector. These cobbles range anywhere from like, you know, a half a K to three Ks. And in the race total, there is 54 Ks of cobbles so this is no light task and no light amount of cobbles i mean it is just absolutely brutal to watch them go over these cobbles i I remember a shot of them looking at wout van art and it was basically from his knee down slow motion and just watching the movement and the jiggle of his calves as he went over these cobbles really spoke to how much you know, I don't know how much pressure, how much force is being put up through the bike and the energy that is being transferred to the rider as they go over each and every one of these cobbles. So first section of the cobbles comes just before the 100k mark. And the second section of cobbles, this is definitely kind of a definitely a sad part, but uh, they are named after Michael Goulart's who died of a cardiac arrest last year. So that was super sad, but they're they're remembering him with naming that section of cobbles after him. So early on in the race, and they, they definitely did a great job in the broadcast, making sure that, that we remembered his life that was lost last year. And so some of the, the iconic ones are coming through the Ehrenberg Forest, and that is an iconic stretch of this race. And it's a super fast stretch because you come down from like a slight... 
decline and then you come into this super fast section of cobbles where there's a lot of carnage there really wasn't much this year but crashes lurk because of of the high speeds and especially if you have rain involved those cobbles get super super slick and no no rain this year it was uh no bad weather cold temps though a lot of riders were wearing thermal gear majority of the race even long sleeves at the finish as a lot of them took off their jackets be a little bit more aero but i think it was in that 35 to 40 degrees fahrenheit so definitely a little bit a little bit cold but no rain no bad weather like that the most feared section of cobbles is the Carrefour de Labre. Again, probably butchered that one, but the Carrefour, super, super feared section of the race comes later in the race, and then they finally end on what is called, quote, unquote, smooth cobbles. This is a one star. The Carrefour is a five star, and that just lets you know the difficulty of these cobbled section most sections are in that like three star range so they go over some nice smooth cobbles and then they head into that Roubaix velodrome where they take a lap and a half in order to figure out who is the winner of Paris Roubaix so that's a little bit of what the course is like and just watching on TV these cobbles are nasty brutal devastating they are just out to get you. What you'll see a lot throughout this race is riders riding in grass, riding in dirt, riding in gravel, anything on the side of these roads so that they don't have to ride on the cobbles. And we'll talk about positioning as well because that's a huge part of this race with these cobbles because you just never know what's going to happen. And another thing that's uh, really prevalent in these races is mechanicals such as derailleurs just not working because things get jiggled around so much and get thrashed around on the bike that screws start coming out of places that you didn't even know had screws. And of course, flat tires and these cobble roads are so skinny that riders get stuck in the, uh, in the front of the race without a team car happened to a, a very important rider who maybe would have had a shot to win the race. Couldn't because his team car could not get to him. So let's get into the race. Like I was alluding to, positioning is a huge, huge part of this race. Each one of these racers wants to be the first one onto those cobbled sections. They don't want to be caught in the back because you can kind of get trapped back there and slowed down in a way if if that middle section is not moving how you want it to. It's also dangerous back there, a lot of crashes, a lot of flat tires, stuff like that. And so it's very important to get out in front of that race. And a lot of times we see a winner break away, whereas you know a lot of stages of the tour, these grand tours, stuff like that, breakaway can have a six, seven-minute lead, peloton will pull them back. Not the case in a race like Paris-Roubaix. You've got to treat these cobble sections almost like a climb. And there's riders who are better at climbs like Chris Froome, you got your climbers, and then there's cobbles guys, Greg Van Affermont, Peter Sagan, the the winner of this race, where I won't won't get to that yet, but people are better on these cobble sections. They know how to ride it better, they know how to ride it smoother, they know what to look for in these cobbles, and that gives them a distinct advantage because you really have to look at a section of cobbles in the same way that you would look at a climb. So in the beginning of the race, Basically, it was just this this weird push-pull of people trying to establish a breakaway and then the peloton reacting very quickly, shutting it down. You know, each team 
is, is trying to put one or two guys into that breakaway. So every time somebody would try to establish a breakaway, a couple riders from each team would go mark them and pull them back or at least try to be in the breakaway, which then ultimately led the, the peloton being able to, to reattach. So we had a long, long time, a couple hours of the peloton staying together, which is just weird for any race for the, the whole peloton to be together. You know, no breakaway could really get more than like 20 seconds and it just wouldn't last that long. And someone who I thought was very odd and it makes a little bit more sense having said all that stuff, but Andre Greipel was trying to get in the breakaway. A couple times he tried to get out in the front and break away, and he couldn't. And Andre Greipel is not a breakaway specialist by any means, but that was his one shot to see if he could win the race early on, see if he could get out in that break and just out outride the rest of the peloton because he was going to be able to do the cobblestones Better. That did not happen. Andre Greipel did not win Paris-Roubaix. So the Peloton was together for a long time. There were some some breakaways who would get away for a couple of seconds, build you know, a small lead, but it really wasn't until the second feed zone that we really got to see what the race was going to look like, and the race really started to take shape when Niels Pollitt, the German from Katusha, he attacked, which formed the first real breakaway and he had some heavy heavy hitters in that breakaway philip gilbert takuna quickstep peter sagan Bora hansgro yves lampart takuna quickstep so he was there with philip gilbert they had two people in that breakaway which served to be very nice for how the race turned out you had walt van art of jumbo and then you had set van mark of ef education first so you had some really heavy hitters in this breakaway, you had six guys who had plenty of experience in these classics. You had Peter Sagan, you know, who was last year's Perry Roubaix winner. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Peter Sagan, so I was rooting for him hard. It did not turn out how I wanted for Sagan. I wanted to see a repeat. But that is okay because he still made that very interesting. And I want to get back to Wow Van Art here after I finish up the whole recap of this race because that man rode an absolutely incredible race and the way that he brought color to this race was unlike kind of anything I have seen and the dedication for him to win was incredible it did not turn out his way but in the same way that Matthew Vanderpool last week in Flanders was able to come back and have a shot to win after crashing was a little bit of the same race for Wild Van Art. I'll get to that in a little bit. So this group built a lead of about one minute. And it was very impressive to see that lead go up and up because you had guys like Greg Van Avermont back in the peloton who was desperately trying to get in that break. And even after the race, he said, I kind of fell asleep at the wrong time of the race. When it went, I wasn't ready. And I wasn't able to mark those moves. And... You know, a lot of credit has to go to Zenik Stebar and other of these Dakunik riders who were able to keep that peloton intact. Now, of course, the cameras were on that lead group, so it's not like we really got to see them a ton in the broadcast. But for Greg Van Avermaet and other guys of some high caliber to not break or bridge back into that group, very, very good defensive riding by the rest of the Dakunik Quick Step team. So, 
that break had a considerable lead. And you, you just kind of had to imagine, Quickstep has two guys in this break. How do they not win this race? Philip Dreblair and Yves Lampard. You got two, two, two strong riders in this break. But you also have Peter Sagan. And you can never rule out Peter Sagan because he knows how to work with other people. I mean, I mean, it's incredible to see how Sagan can over and over and over not have a teammate somewhere and then win a sprint. So that group stayed together for about 40K. And Wout wow, Van Aert was really the first one to fall off of the group turn it into a five-man group. And that was totally understandable that he fell off because the things that he had been through in that day, it was incredible that he was even in that group. And so I'll get to that after after I finish this up. But with about 14K to go, it was again Paulette who launched an attack and it was only Gilbert who could follow that. And now the race was really going to be between Paulette and Gilbert. And even though the announcers kept saying it over and over and over again that the race was basically down to these two, I was like, nope, you're wrong. Peter Sagan's going to come back. He's going to do it. He's Peter Sagan. I was just so adamant. I was like, you guys are idiots. You don't know what you're talking about. Pub roll. You know, but they, they were right. And I, I should have just listened to them from the start. I wanted Sagan to come back so, so bad, but he just didn't have the legs. And we didn't really know that till later on in the race towards the very end and even after the race. So it came down, it was Paulette and Gilbert, 14K to go, and now these two were working together to build that lead. Neither one was trying to break away from the other. They weren't really playing a cat and mouse game. They were working together, taking turns on the front in order to establish a, a break from the breakaway. And now it was Yves Lampart, Sagan, and Sepp Van Mark back. Now now they are the chasing group, and it was those three. So now you think it's Yves Lampart job to hold Sagan and set Van Mark back. Well, I mean, kind of little did he know. And he, I mean, maybe he did know more depending on the, the attack that he did do, which was kind of weird. But set Van Mark was having some kind of mechanical issue. We didn't really know what it was. He was putting his hand up, trying to get the team car up to him. And the team car just could not get up to him for whatever reason that was. He talked with Mavic Neutral Service he wasn't able to get a bike from them for some reason. Again, we don't know, or I, I don't know the reason behind a lot of this because can't hear what they're saying, but he, he couldn't get that bike. And so now Sepp Van Mark is kind of out of the race if he doesn't have a bike. He, he was still riding. I think he was caught in a certain gear, couldn't get out of it because his derailleur was not moving. So he could still move, but couldn't move at the rate that he wanted, put down the power numbers that he wanted. So now it looks like you just got Lamparts and Sagan there which Sagan was out of legs, and we really saw that towards the end of the race, but I'm guessing Lamparts knew that Sagan was out because Lamparts attacked and tried to get back onto that group even though he was down by like, you know, 35, 40 seconds, somewhere in there, and that was a really weird move because at this point, you have a guy up in the front. It's between two guys. One of them is your rider. Why would you try to bridge back up like, what if you brought Sagan back up in the group and Sagan won the race? That would have been absolutely devastating. So at the time that Lamparts, you know, made this attack, I, I was like, what are you doing? But he he had to have known more that Sagan didn't have it in him and that Sepp Van Mark was out. And ultimately, he was, he was right. He looked brilliant because it almost became very decisive that he was actually up closer to them. 
which I'll talk about in a second. So now it's Gilbert and Paulet. Clearly the race is between those two, and you're like, how does Gilbert not win this race? He is definitely the more experienced guy. It was like Paris-Roubaix last year when you had Sagan and Dillier, and they entered the velodrome. And you're like, yeah, there's no way Dillier has a chance. Sagan's going to win this. In a way, I was like, well, Gilbert's got this. He's going to win this. And so they enter the velodrome, and Gilbert is in second wheel. Now, this is where it got really, really interesting with Lampart's coming up behind them because he was only about 20 seconds back now at this point when they entered the velodrome. So Paulette is screwed. He's in the first wheel. Gilbert's in the second wheel. When it comes to a sprint, especially on the track, your second wheel you're probably going to win so Paulette's already in a tough situation and when they enter that velodrome they do a half a lap where they cross the finish line the bell is ringing and now they have a full lap in that velodrome so what can happen is you can be a half a lap ahead of somebody who enters the velodrome even though you're going to be riding at the exact same spot you're a lap ahead so that's where it got very interesting with Lampart's coming back into the race because there was a point where now Gilbert and Pollitt were kind of playing this cat and mouse game, slowing down. None of them got to a track stand, but they were slowing down. But Pollitt could only slow down so much because if he slowed down too much, now Lampart's catches back up. He attacks, takes Gilbert on his wheel. Gilbert, you know, goes away for the victory. So, Paulette was between a rock and a hard place. He, he really had no move. Now, Lamparts did not get back to them. Gilbert was able to just make his move in the last few hundred meters and outsprint Paulette for the victory. But that was very, very, very interesting on, well, one, you had Lamparts attacking with a couple K to go, and you're like, what are you doing? What if you bring Sagan back on? You're going to screw up this whole race. Clearly, he knew something. And then we get into the velodrome, and now you're like, Lamparts is a genius. He might be able to help Gilbert win this race again at this very decisive moment. Gilbert was able to outsprint the big German and take the win in Perry Roubaix. And that was his fourth monument win. He had never won Perry Roubaix, never done it great. And so. He just has Milan-San Remo, and he will have all five Classics won in his career. So this was definitely a huge win for Gilbert. And, I mean, he's one win away from cycling immortality up there with names like Eddie Merckx. And so for Gilbert to get this win, and in his older age, you know, we've seen some older guys really do well. As of late, you had Alejandro Valverde winning the World Championship. Looking really good in his Flanders debut last week as well. Gilbert up there in age as well. And just these guys are showing that age does not matter. Especially sprinting against a 25-year-old Paulet from Katusha. You know, he uh, he showed that even after six hours, Gilbert's got it in the tank. So congrats to Philip Gilbert. It was awesome to see him win and uh, kind of get closer and closer to etching his name in cycling immortality. So now let's talk about Wout Van Aert. I mentioned the, a couple times that he just had this incredible race. So Wout Van Aert, he had a roller coaster of a day, let me tell you. So early on in the race, he had a bike change. Some kind of mechanical happened. He took a teammate's bike. So he takes the teammate's bike, teammate's bike rides a little ways. Team car is able to get back up to him. So they're telling him on race radio, hey, we're getting close. We're going to swap bikes. We'll give you your spare bike. 
you'll, you'll, you know, be comfortable, be in your fit, you'll be on your bike. So he swaps onto that bike. He is now trying to chase back onto the Peloton. And this is before that first attack was ever done by Paulette uh, after that second feed zone. And so now he's trying to bridge back up using the cars to get back on. Well, he takes a turn a little too aggressively and just wipes out hard, rips up, you know, his bib shorts on his right side, hip and thigh. That's all tore up. His glasses go flying. His bike goes flying. And you're just, you're feeling so sad because you're like, this guy's day is over. And it was the exact same last week in Flanders when Matthew Vanderpool had the mechanical, well, had the flat front tire, flipped over his handlebars. You're like, this dude's race is over. He got back into the break. Guess what? Wild Van Aert did the exact same thing. He got into that lead group. And it was just incredible to see the toughness and the the, deter, the determination. Goodness gracious, that was hard to say. Don't uh, don't make fun of me for, for that one. <laughs> you can make fun of me for all the, the wrong names I pronounce and the foreign words that I mispronounce. But uh, the, the English language today is uh, catching me up. But anyways, Wout Van Aert just making this race so colorful and so entertaining. Like these cyclocross guys. I'm just thinking they're the toughest of the tough. And I know bike riders are tough in general. But to, to, to have the day that he had, and that crash looked really devastating. I mean, he took that turn aggressively. That bike slipped out from underneath him. He went down hard, side all ripped up. Just incredible that he made it up to that group. And so when he faded away with, you know, the couple Ks to go, it was totally understandable that he just did not have it in the tank. But still, amazing to see him up there. And I'm really excited to see more and more of these cyclocross riders coming on. If they're going to animate the race like this, I mean, let's bring them all over. Second guy I want to talk about, Taylor Finney. I thought he would be a dark horse for this. Taylor Finney of EF Education First. He rode a good ride last Roubaix. I think he finished in the top 10. Now, Sepp Van Mark was definitely the leader for EF Education First. But, you know, kind of the whole race, I was like, yeah, where is... Uh, Where's Taylor Finney? I do not see him. And we didn't learn until later on in the race that he had a mechanical and his team car drove right past him. And that really tells you the stress that these riders and these teams are under. You know, you can really see the stress of the riders in the early parts of the races. They're trying to establish a breakaway. People are shutting it down real quick. You can just kind of feel that tension. But then to realize that, you know, the rest of these teams are under an immense amount of pressure as well. This is a massive race for them and what it could do for a career, what can what it can do for a team's season. You know, there's all these things on the line with sponsor pressures, with fan pressures, with money pressures, whatever it is. And for his team car just to drive right past him as he's on the side of the road really does show you the pressure that these teams are under. And listening to... I believe it was Lance Armstrong talking on his podcast that, yeah, they're trying to not run over people while they're driving on the road. They're trying to watch the race, monitor the race, talk to their riders in the race radio, look at what's coming up next for the riders. So they're under a lot of stress in the car, regardless of those outside pressures. So Taylor Finney's day was over very early, didn't even have a shot. And it's a little bit sad to see that as I thought he would have you know, at least a shot to win it or do a top 10 finish or be there for a guy like Sepp Van Mark and give him the win as well. Next guy, Peter Sagan, he clearly did not have the legs at the end. 
He took fifth. He was right up with that lead group the entire time. And then when Paulette and Gilbert took off in that last attack, which ultimately won the race for Gilbert, Sagan just didn't have it. And I think it was Sepp Van Mark who took fourth. You know, he sprinted away from Sagan. Sagan did not even, you know, attempt to to take him on in that sprint. He just let him go. So clearly Sagan did not have the legs. And I'm getting a little frustrated listening to some of the media where they're like, what's going on with Sagan? Has he fallen off? Is he just not there? You know, and they're looking at like two weeks of Sagan's racing. I don't know what's going on with Sagan. I don't know if it's personal issues, if he just doesn't have the legs, or if he's targeting later races. I mean, maybe he does not want to fully empty the tank. I don't want to say that because every race is big, and if you're a competitive person, it doesn't really matter what the situation is. You still want to win. But I know that Liege Basson Liege is on his list. Amstel Gold Race, I believe, is on his list as well. But Liege, for sure, something that he was targeting early on in the season. So I, I'm not 100% sure. I don't think he has fallen off the horse by any means. I don't think he's over his prime. None of those issues. But it's still sad to see him come in fifth. I want to see him take first. Regardless of what you think of Sagan, I love the guy. I think he's great for the sport. So I want to see how he is going to respond in these next couple of races. And uh, the dominance of Takuna Quickstep. I've been saying it on every single podcast but Perry-Roubaix just again helped cement that. They had four of the top eight guys. They had two guys on the podium of Roubaix. This team is built for the classics, and they do it so well. It's like the New England Patriots of cycling. New England Patriots, American football team, when it comes to playoff time, there's just no stopping them. And it's kind of like Takuna Quickstep. When it comes classic season, there is just no stopping these guys. It's just like every single race over and over and over again. They just put on this clinic. I mean, they had two guys in that lead break. And then at the back, or I mean in the peloton, they had guys shutting down breaks. They were stopping guys like Greg Van Offermont. I mean, this is just an incredible team that is really putting on a display of what can happen when you have a strong team who is working for a common goal and there probably is egos on the team but for the the wealth that has been shared for these first place finishes in the classic season is incredible it's not just one guy it's multiple guys winning these races so again Takuna Quickstep hats off to them as they're just absolutely dominating this classics season and then last note you know I, I made reference to it right away but Greipel you know, trying to make that early break, it just shows you the nerves that these guys have and, and the anticipation that is building and the stress that they're under. I mean, a guy like Greipel, he is a seasoned veteran in this race, and he had to try to get out there in front in order for him, for him to win. At least that's my take on why he was trying to be in that break. Otherwise, it really doesn't make any sense to why Greipel was trying to get in that break so early on. But even guys who are, are very experienced in this sport still under that same amount of pressure and what they have to do in order to win. So that is it for Pro News. That was Perry Root Bay. Super, super exciting. If you get any chance, definitely go watch some highlights of it. Rewatch the race. The last, I don't know, 30Ks was very exciting in, in my book as that's where the race really developed. We started to see a lot of, a lot of things happen in that breakaway group. 
And then, you know, with that like 14K to go, then we started seeing guys drop off. Just a phenomenal race, even though it wasn't super muddy, super rainy. We didn't have, you know, mud-covered faces. Amazing Paris-Roubaix in my book. Blast to watch. Can't wait for it again in a year. So that is it for Pro News. Now we're going to head on over into Tech News. So over in tech, I felt like a little kid in a candy store because two new bikes came out this week for Paris-Roubaix. I didn't know that they were coming out. They weren't really on anybody's radar. Nobody was talking about it. And so what two bikes are they? Well, one is very rightly named the Roubaix from Specialized. And this is a newer version of their Roubaix, which they launched a couple weeks or a couple years ago. Uh, really revolutionized with that Future Shock system in there. And this bike is, I believe, the winningest bike in Paris-Roubaix history and this year five of the top eight riders rode the new Roubaix four of them being Takuna Quickstep riders one being Peter Sagan but still five of the top eight riders riding this new Roubaix that's got to say something that this bike you know Specialized knows what they're doing with this bike and they made an incredible bike for these cobbles so what is this bike what is it all about well for starters I mean, it's their endurance-style bike, and it does not look like an endurance-style bike. I mean, it looks very racy, very slick, very, like, I could ride this in a crit, and nobody would look at me weird that I'm racing with an endurance bike in a crit, because it looks that cool. It takes a lot from the Tarmac, has the same geometry as the latest specialized tarmac has the drop seat stays as well which is very you know a very keen piece in an aero bike is those drop seat stays and so the tubing in it as well looks a lot like the tarmac it has a d-shaped tubing for like the seat post which is aerodynamic but also allows a lot of deflection and basically deflection just means that it makes the ride more comfortable that d-shaped seat post is really nice for it but also like when you look into the seat post it has room for that seat post to move and flex and give the rider more comfort out on the road so it has a lot of these aero capabilities or aero tubing and aero profile but yet very very well designed to also be efficient going over these rough rough roads and making it more comfortable for the rider you know the less energy that can be transferred up to the rider the more energy that that rider can transfer out basically so really good job for specialized in designing this endurance style bike that basically is a an aero bike or a, a light climbing bike but really what makes the Roubaix different is the suspension right above that head tube so right under what would traditionally be the stem cap is this suspension in the bike and this allows just for a lot of comfort with the handlebars and with the upper part of your body. So much of that pressure is taken away through that dampening system. And what's really, really cool is it has a lockout feature in there. So you can manually adjust the lockout and the suspension dampening system while you're riding the bike. So if you're on a smooth section of road, lock that puppy out, you get some cobbles, Make sure opening that uh, that suspension up, and then boom, 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 you're flying 
like a breeze over those cobbles. So that's a, a really cool piece of innovation. Like I said, five of the top eight riders were riding this new Roubaix. Like if you don't think this bike works, you know, I don't, I don't know what more facts I could give you. I don't know what more marketing specialized could do to show you that this bike works and that it is freaking fast and that it, it it makes you sail over these cobbles and to have five of the top eight riders in Paris-Roubaix riding this new Roubaix. So in the similar vein, Pinarello launched a new bike, not necessarily a brand new system, you know, like to Roubaix. Roubaix had the Future Shock in it. They just made it better, made the rest of the bike better. So Pinarello launched a new Dogma FS, which if you don't know what FS stands for, you will know in about two seconds. So FS stands for full suspension. That is right, a full suspension road bike. A full suspension road bike. That is, I I think, brand new. I mean, there's gravel bikes that are full suspension now, but this is a full suspension road bike. So what does that mean? Well, between the headset and the fork, there is suspension in there. So uh, uh, like to the, the Roubaix, it's got suspension in that front part of the bike. But this one is right under that headset and between the fork. And there's 28 millimeters of hydraulic dampening in there. And, and it only adds 300 grams to the bike. That's pretty impressive for a suspension system on a road bike. And this is made by a company called High Ride who I think also makes suspension systems for cars, so they definitely know what they are doing. But what really makes this bike more special is that it also has a rear suspension system made by High Ride. And this rear suspension system works all off of the sensors that are in the seat tube. And basically the sensors can tell how rough the vibrations are coming from the road surface and within one tenth of a second they're able to react with the suspension system and make the bike compress and dampen and soften that load for the rider. Now alike to the Roubaix there's also different parts of the bike that are shaped in a way to add comfort such as longer chain stays as compared to the Dogma F10, but these longer chain stays add more compliance, add more comfort, and so all around the bike is made for more and more comfort, yet it has a lot of those aero tubing profiles that are seen on the Dogma F10 and Pinarello's TT bike. So this bike is still made for comfort and aerodynamics all at the same time. Now they don't get to boast the stats that Specialized does. Now they only had one team riding this in Team Sky, but I think Team Sky, the highest they finished was like 24, whereas Specialized Roubaix had five of the top eight riders. So clearly did not perform at the same level, but also Team Sky and Takuna Quickstep are two different teams for this race in specific. So two new bikes came out showing that Full suspension may be here to stay for road bikes. I think, you know, down the road, we could be looking at aero bikes having suspension in them because you can make a bike that is super aero while also putting a little bit of suspension in it to make it more and more comfortable. I don't know. That that could be, you know, five, ten years down the road.
but certainly these are really, really cool innovations, and I think they could be here to stay, especially on the gravel side. And so one other bit of tech that I wanted to point out was I saw a picture of Dakuna Quickstep riders having hex keys taped to the back of their seat posts. Now, riders never carry any tools with them when they're in a race because they have a team car. And so this was super interesting, and they were the only teams that I saw do it, but they had a hex key taped to the back of their seat post so that they could always change a wheel no matter who was giving them a wheel because there are swan years on the side of the road holding wheels up, especially in races like this. They try to get as many volunteers as they can to hold wheels on the side of the road, and this way each Dakota Quickstep rider would have a hex key in order to take out that spindle, that through axle, and swap out a tire. So I thought that was really, really interesting, and I guess that's kind of a bit of tech, even though it's like even more old school to just tape a tool around your seat bows, but clearly it worked out for them. So that is it. That is the Cycling with Watts podcast, and I thank you so much for tuning in, especially if this was your first time. Thank you so much for uh, yeah listening to me talk for 37 minutes so far. So thank you, thank you, thank you very much. If you want to get more Cycling with Watts, please go check out uh, website, cyclingwithwatts.com. Shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from any and all of you about any questions you have about cycling, stuff you'd like to hear on the show. You just want to say hey to me, send me an email, cyclingwithwatts at gmail.com. Go follow me on Instagram at cyclingwithwatts. And that is it. We will see you back next week for the Cycling with Watts podcast. Have a great rest of your day. Go out get on your bike, get riding. That's it. Peace.